Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Age of Ecology. In the late 1940s, shortly before his death, the American conservationist, Aldo Leopold, published an essay called The Land Ethic. In this essay, he raised disturbing questions about the utilitarian, human-centered approach to conservation, in which he himself had participated as the author of an influential text on game management. One basic weakness in a conservation system based wholly on economic motives, Leopold wrote, is that most members of the land community have no economic value. When one of these is threatened, and if we happen to love it, we invent subterfuges to give it economic importance. To get out of this bind, Leopold proposed that society be centered on something greater than the human interest, what he called the land community, of which humanity was to be no more than a plain citizen. Leopold's essay raised questions which are more pertinent than ever today in the midst of widespread panic about the environment. Is the earth ours to manage? Do humans actually have the capacity to manage it in any event? Is an environmental movement which adopts the utilitarian language of economics trying to drive out the devil with the devil? Tonight, in the second hour of the Age of Ecology, you'll meet two people who have tried to put forward these troublesome questions. Naturalist John Livingston and biologist David Ehrenfeld. The Age of Ecology is written and presented by David Cayley. In the early 1970s, a powerful environmental movement began to take shape in North America. By the end of that decade, it was evident that this movement was far from homogeneous. One of the points of division was the problem Leopold had posed in the 40s, the proper role of human beings in the larger community of life. The problem was implicit in the very word this movement popularized as the sign of its concerns, the word environment. Environment, according to my dictionary, means the aggregate of external circumstances. Unlike nature or world, it's a purely relational term, conferring value on something only in relation to something else. Environment is always, implicitly, our environment. Philosophers like Norway's Arne Ness began to distinguish what he called deep ecology, which sees intrinsic value in nature, from a reformist perspective which argued only in terms of the environment's instrumental value for human beings. One of the books which introduced this more searching, more philosophical spirit into the North American environmental movement was David Ehrenfeld's The Arrogance of Humanism. Ehrenfeld is a professor of biology at Rutgers University in New Jersey, the editor of a journal called Conservation Biology, and a well-known writer. We spoke in his office at Rutgers about the mood in which he conceived the arrogance of humanism. What originally made me write The Arrogance of Humanism was a, a paper that I had written for American scientists called, uh, if I remember correctly, The Conservation of Non-Resources. And in that I examined the problem of what do we do about the 90 or 95 percent of animals and plants in the world that don't have any value to human beings that's obvious. Do we pretend that they have a value? Do we concoct values? Do we search and see if we can find values? Or do we develop other reasons 
for conserving things that don't seem to have any value and may in fact never have one. Uh, that paper was very successful and it got a lot of attention. And uh, I was talking about it with my wife Joan, uh, uh, who's a plant ecologist, one day, and uh, she said, well, why don't you turn it into a book? And uh, that's exactly what I did. I developed the book around the paper. David, what approximately did you and do you mean by humanism? Well, the way I use the word humanism in the book is, it's, it's one of these motherhood words, you know, I mean, it has so many meanings, and some of them are things that you can't possibly argue against or dislike. Uh, the definition I used is about the second or third definition you'd find in the dictionary, which is making a religion or the religion of humanity. It's the belief that human control knows no bounds, no limits, that uh, ultimately we are the be-all and end-all on this planet, and uh, we should therefore have faith in our own abilities to arrange things as we see fit. That's, that's the humanism that I was referring to. Can you give an example or examples of what you mean? Well, an old example is the Aswan Dam. The Aswan Dam was built to solve a particular problem, which is that they needed power for industrialization. And of course, there were political problems, too, because the Russians were building it for the Egyptians, and uh, there were political reasons why it had to be built. But they were told before it was built that uh, it was going to cause all kinds of health problems for them because the irrigation canals would have snails, which would spread schistosomiasis all over, which is a terrible disease, all over uh, Egypt, and a number of uh, Harvard Medical School par parasitologists were told to leave Egypt when they said this. Some very distinguished parasitologists were essentially kicked out when they warned about it. The dam stopped the flooding of the Nile Basin, so all the spreading of nutrients brought down by the river over the soil, which was a free spreading of nutrients, during the flood season stopped. Uh, the dam is silting up, as the dams always do, so that all of that nutrient, which was at one point useful when the river was spreading it itself, is now just junk sitting at the bottom of the reservoir and making the reservoir shallow. Uh, it cut off the flow of fresh water to uh, the eastern end of the Mediterranean, which made the Mediterranean more salty, uh, and yet it reduced the nutrients at the same time, which made the algal growth less common, so the sardine fishery died, uh, and one can go on and on. The, the dam was an unmitigated disaster for, for Egypt. The Aswan Dam is a classic case of unwanted side effects, foreseeable to some extent, but ignored in the pursuit of the main chance and eventually overwhelming the intended benefits. There are dams just like it all over the world, dams with silted up reservoirs, dams whose turbines are choked with water hyacinths, dams which drove whole peoples from their homelands and broke their spirits. The history of foreign aid is full of such projects. But Ehrenfeld's point is not restricted just to mega-projects like dams. He thinks the models of biologists are just as likely to go awry as the models of engineers. One example, and it's one Eastern Canadian fishing communities are likely to be sensitive to at the moment, is the concept of maximum sustainable yield in fisheries biology. If you start fishing in a fishery, uh, at the beginning at least, when the fishery is first fished, you actually can get more out of it as you fish more. And that may be, well, it's probably for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons, for example, is that you're catching the 
older fish, which are hogging a lot of the resources, but not growing very fast, and therefore leaving uh, resources, food, for the younger fish, which are growing quite quickly. So you can actually increase the yield of fish caught, but just by fishing a fishery, up to a certain point. And that point is, theoretically at least, is the maximum sustained yield. And you can, in theory, continue fishing at that level forever and always catch that level of fish. This is the theory. It was nicely exploded uh, about 10 years ago by, I think, a Canadian fisheries biologist by the name of Philip Larkin. What Larkin did was, in a paper called An Epitaph for the Concept of Maximum Sustained Yield, was point out that the idea treats a fishery, a species of fish, let's say mackerel or herring, as the only thing in the sea. But of course, there are many species of fish and other kinds of animals and plants upon which the fish ultimately depend, uh, all of which are interacting. And this interaction, this complexity, makes it impossible to deal with a, uh, a fishery as if it were composed of just one species. So in fact, when you manage one species, another one that's valuable may go down, or things that are happening with the second fishery may affect your plans for the first one. It, it really kind of gets out of hand. And I, in my book, uh, pointed out that this was very reminiscent of uh, something that John von Neumann and uh, Oscar Morgenstern, uh, a great physicist, nuclear physicist, and uh, mathematician and an economist, respectively, had pointed out in their book on the economic theory of games, namely that in a closed system, you can't maximize more than one variable at a time. It's just not possible to do. And so there are limits. And this is one of the limits. And uh, I think we should be suspect whenever we hear that our activities in the environment are working out just fine uh, when they involve a great deal of control, because very often they don't. David Ehrenfeld's fundamental point in The Arrogance of Humanism, as I'm sure you've gathered, is that the best-laid schemes of mice and men gang after Glay. His approach in this sense seems to resemble Ivan Illich's. Illich has identified a phenomenon he calls paradoxical counterproductivity, whereby institutions, once they cross a certain threshold of size and intensity, begin to frustrate and subvert the very purposes for which they were established in the first place. Education stupefies. Medicine sickens. The machine turns on its creator. Ehrenfeld sees similar inherent limits to successful human intervention in the environment. And feeling this way, he's skeptical of the current rah-rah, we-can-turn-it-around approach to environmental cleanup, feeling that it may not have grasped just how deep the problem goes. I don't think there's any doubt that if we do not change our fundamental philosophy and our approach to dealing with this world, that all the recycling, all the cleanup, all the neighborhood committees, all the river watches, all of this sort of thing in the world will not be enough to make even a dent in the problem. It really will be just a tiny blip on uh, the history of environmental collapse. That sounds very bad. If these remedial kinds of actions, cleanup actions, are accompanied by what I would call some spiritual action, 
then I think we have a reasonable chance. A reasonable chance. But without it, I, I, I just don't see any hope at all. Setting aside just for the moment the spiritual action necessary, why will these efforts be only a blip, as you said? Because if we are going to say it's going to be life as usual, with the exception that we will try to clean up as we make our little piles of dirt as we go along, that's just hopeless. The, the problem is, is of much greater magnitude than that. I can't begin to tell you how, how, how trivial then our cleanups would be. Uh, there also has been this rah-rah spirit in conservation has been applied to the saving of species. Well, frankly, although it's important to try to save species in zoos and some of the more responsible zoos like the Bronx Zoo and the Chicago, the Lincoln Park Zoo and San Diego Zoo in this country are, are certainly doing that and some of the zoos in England and I would imagine Canada too. Nevertheless, it's quite clear that, for example, we can't save more than a trivial percentage of animals in zoos and if we do save them in zoos, what have we got? What is a tiger? Uh, that has been kept in zoos for three or four generations or six generations. What kind of an animal is it? Is it still a tiger? Is it a large pussycat? Does it know what to do genetically in the wild? Is it capable of coping with Siberian winters or Indian monsoons? Uh, we don't know. We're trying to save seeds of endangered plant varieties in places like the National Seed Storage Laboratory in Fort Collins and in places like Kew Gardens in England. And it's a failure. It's an abysmal, stinking failure. We cannot save seeds of even the varieties of things that we have created in this world for a whole number of reasons. But in fact, we often are losing more than we're acquiring so that every time a new variety comes in, on the average, uh, an old one disappears of corn or wheat or uh, rice or eggplant or whatever we're trying to save. But there are even biological reasons as well as the political and technological ones why this kind of saving doesn't work. What has to be done is to protect the farmers in the environments in which they live who are growing these things. In other words, we're really talking about a kind of a problem that technology is utterly incapable of coping with. It's too big for technology and too complicated for technology. We just don't know what to do, how to do it, nor do we have the resources even if we did. So I would say the spirit of Earth Day is wonderful provided we have a mechanism for translating it into the realization that as Wendell Berry says, we have to all learn to live a little bit poorer. We have to learn to live without ruining and that is going to mean that there are things we cannot do anymore that we seem to want to do. Living poorer for Ehrenfeld means living on an entirely different scale. Like many ecologists he sees that environmental destruction has proceeded at all times and in all kinds of social systems. Ancient civilizations wrecked their agriculture just as modern civilizations are doing. Communism as we now see from the sick children and sterilized soils of Eastern Europe, is worse than capitalism. Ehrenfeld concludes that the large-scale state is itself the problem, however it is organized. 
I don't really think that the social system, at least in the classic socialism versus capitalism lines, makes a, a heck of a lot of difference. I think that's an outmoded idea. I think that what does make a difference is the degree to which a society decides it's going to be managerial. And I think that if you set up large-scale centralized management, regardless of the political system, whether it's a democracy or a dictatorship, whether it's pure socialism, pure communism, pure capitalism, or some kind of mix, you're going to have the same kind of environmental degradation. And if you set up a system in which your units, your political units and your control units are small, fairly decentralized, and somewhat hands-off, you're going to have much less environmental degradation than you do now. So I would see that there's going to be a great shift, which we're now seeing the beginnings of. And somebody else will have to write this book, because I'm not a political scientist. But the paradigm that we've all been brought up with is communism versus capitalism. Well, that stuff is old hat. You can throw it away. It's not interesting anymore. It's not productive and it's not useful. The next paradigm that's important is big versus small, centralized versus decentralized, control versus hands-off. This, I think, is the paradigm that the next century is going to have to cope with somehow. Uh, how, I'm not sure. David Ehrenfeld's denunciation of human arrogance like his call for spiritual action, has deep roots in the Jewish tradition from which he comes. He denies the prevalent view that the biblical religions are the source of human chauvinism towards nature. This view traces back to an influential essay written by historian Lynn White, Jr. in 1967 called The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. White argued in this essay that Christianity in particular had preached man's destiny to dominate and exploit nature. David Ehrenfeld disagrees. Yes, there's a f the famous two sentences, two verses in Genesis 1, chapters 26 and chapter 28, in which uh, Adam is told to go out and uh, take dominion over the earth and to subdue it. And that's pretty terrible sounding, isn't it? And that, according to Lynn White, uh, uh, gave a license to Christians and to Jews, although I think he's less concerned with Jews, uh, uh, gave a license to Christians to go and destroy. Well, this is all very nice uh, sort of in retrospect, but in fact it was never interpreted. Those verses were never interpreted that way either by the early Jewish sages or by the Christian church fathers. Nobody interpreted it that way. Let me read to you an extract from uh, Ecclesiastes Rabbah, which is a commentary on the book of Ecclesiastes, which was first redacted in the 8th century. Now this is uh, 1,200 years ago that it was written down and is probably older than that. At any rate, the point is that this was not a time when people were worried about the environmental crisis. So uh, let, let me read that to you. In the hour when the Holy One, blessed be he, created the first man, he took him and let him pass before all of the trees of the Garden of Eden, and said to him, See my works, how fine and excellent they are. Now all that I am going to create for you I have already created. Think about this, and do not corrupt and desolate my world, for if you corrupt it, there will be no one to set it right after you. Now, think of the power and grandeur of this. 
But these are people who are writing in the 8th century, in the Dark Ages, is what we call them. How in accord is that with the thesis of Lynn White that uh, the early Jews and Christians and modern Jews and Christians have taken a license to destroy from the Bible? Here's, here's another little commentary. Uh, this is from uh, the Talmud, the great Jewish uh, commentary on, on the law. Just a little four lines. Our masters taught, man was created on the eve of the Sabbath, and for what reason? So that in case his heart grew proud, one might say to him, even the gnat was in creation before you were there. <laughs> I mean, isn't that, isn't that an extraordinary kind of a uh, statement? I, you know, in the arrogance of humanism, I very carefully, I, I of course, have considered this uh, article of Lynn White's uh, in the paperback edition, which is still available much more than in the original hardcover. And so I put two quotes, one to start the book and one to end. And the quote I started the book with was from the book of Job. Is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Where God is uh, saying to Job, uh, uh, I created this, you didn't. Uh, really, who do you think you are? Uh, and then I ended the book with a uh, brief quotation from Isaiah, and this is a modern Jewish translation, and I think a good translation of the Hebrew. It was your skill and your science that led you astray, and you thought to yourself, I am and there is none but me. That, I think, really uh, sums it up, uh, what I'm talking about uh, when I'm saying that we have to recapture some kind of spiritual dimension in our relationship to the world, and a little bit of humility, too. This raises a question about where our attention should be directed, I think. There's a lot of language about saving the planet and so on, right? Which seems to me it directs attention outwards. And I wonder if that's good, you know, whether we can deal with this without directing attention inwards, without seeing that it's we who are being corrupted and not just the environment as a sort of a colorless, tasteless, odorless out there. Yes, I, I'm sitting here with a book at my elbow by Wendell Berry, the unsettling of American. I think for many of us, uh, Wendell Berry uh, is the first and the last word on the whole subject of uh, where the world is heading and where it ought to be heading. And Berry has always said that conservation begins at home, that environmentalism begins at home. And this, I think, is absolutely critical. <clears throat> One has to put one's own internal house in order and then go to the community, and then if there's any luxury of time or energy left over, then you go on to wider things. I think some people have to have, in a sense, some, some of that time and energy left over because there has to be some spreading of this idea around the world and some communication. But first you start at home, and then it has to extend from oneself. You can't be a hermit and be an environmentalist just as, for instance, you can't be a hermit and be a, a practicing Jew, you have to have a community. I'd like to ask you finally about what I'll call environmentalism, for want of a better term, meaning all those persons who are concerned with this. And this is a movement which seems 
divided in many ways, but which ranges certainly from a managerial perspective at, at one end, right? uh, an attitude which is confident that sustainable development is possible, that, that you can have growth and environmental protection, however it's phrased. And at the other end, one has um, a biocentric perspective, let's say, descending from Leopold's famous saying that we should be only a, a plain citizen of the biotic community. It seems to me that, that coming out of your Jewish roots, you take a, a different view, neither one nor the other. Yeah, let, let me try to answer your question by describing the Jewish attitude towards work and the Sabbath, which I think is the ultimate, for me at least, the ultimate way of stating this problem. In Judaism, you're supposed to work six days and rest on the seventh. On the seventh day, on the Sabbath, which for us is Saturday, or it actually starts Friday evening at sundown, you are supposed to stop working, and there's three things you have to do if you are going to observe the Sabbath correctly. You can't create anything. I mean anything. You can't, if you get an idea for a book, you cannot write it down on a piece of paper. That's very painful for an author, and it happens to me all the time. And I wonder, will I remember this uh, till uh, after sundown uh, on Saturday? And sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't, and I have stopped worrying about it. If you're a gardener, you can't uh, plant a seed. That's a creative act. You can't do it. You also can't destroy anything. That's the second thing you can't do. Again, if you're a gardener, you can't, and you see a, a weed growing in your garden, you can't pull it up. You can't kill an insect pest. You can't shoot a rabbit or anything of that sort uh, on the Sabbath. The third thing that you're supposed to do is a positive injunction, which is to celebrate the Sabbath and celebrate the fullness of the earth that was given to people to live in, to work in, and to enjoy. So you have this prohibition against creating or destroying, which means you cannot be a manager. You can't be a steward even, in any sense. You've got to leave it alone, and it will continue all by itself. It's a wonderful lesson. You also have to learn how to enjoy it, and that's the other part of the lesson. People were told you had to have the confidence, in a sense, in the earth and in the creator of the earth that says, I'm going to just rest for one day. I'm going to leave it alone. Now. I think that stewardship, without the idea of the Sabbath, is bound to go wrong. Without this idea of the Sabbath, without some idea of a built-in restraint, then the steward eventually becomes uh, very arrogant. Uh, hence my title, The Arrogance of Humanism. Uh, the steward says, I'm really the king. You know, the uh, late J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, in his book, uh, his wonderful Ring trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, has this dilemma of a steward who says, how long do I have to stay a steward if the king doesn't show up? When do I become a king? And uh, the man who asks this question is told by his father, who is the steward, uh, even 10,000 years wouldn't be enough. Uh, and uh, essentially, there is never a time when a steward becomes a king. Well, I think that, that there's a great temptation for stewards to want to play king, to want to play God. And without some kind of a restraint, 
that's built in at a regular basis, a kind of constant reminder, you're not running the show, you can't run the show. You don't know enough to run the show and you never will. And you're only going to mess it up if you have that attitude. Without that idea, then I think that stewardship is bound to go awry, and uh, to go amiss. I think that the idea of the Sabbath for Jews, and perhaps for Christians too, introduces this idea of, of restraint, uh, which is so essential to keep stewardship on the right track. So uh, uh, I think that stewardship is the only hope, but I think it has to have some kind of restraint built into it. David, thank you so much. You're welcome. In 1980, a book appeared which I think of as a kind of sibling to the arrogance of humanism. It was called The Fallacy of Wildlife Conservation, and it was written by John Livingston, a lifelong naturalist and a professor in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. It was a book, Livingston once told me, written in blood, his life's blood. After a lifetime of arguing for wildlife conservation, Livingston took apart the arguments he himself had made and found them all wanting. Everything seemed to come back to what David Ehrenfeld calls the doctrine of final causes, the idea that the end to which something can be put is the cause for which it was created, the idea, as Ehrenfeld says, that gravity exists in order to make it easier for us to sit down, or that rainforests should be saved because they may contain undiscovered medicines, Species and places with no obvious economic usefulness become recreational amenities, prized for their aesthetic value. All arguments circle back on humanity. None can penetrate what Livingston calls the metaphysical dome which encloses human society and cuts us off from the living world. In the light of the fallacy of wildlife conservation, John Livingston began, in effect, a second career searching for a way out of environmentalism's utilitarian bind, trying to put a retractable roof on the metaphysical dome. We spoke recently in his office at York. I, if I have a technique, it has been, I think, to ask the question that my, uh, my colleague Reg Lang always asks, what is the problem to which this is the solution? And so I've do, what I've done mostly is critical analysis, I think, of the... Uh, of the statements of the so-called conservation movement, the so-called environmental movement, and so forth. Uh, nobody seems to want to reveal what the problem is that is being addressed by all the environmental placards. I like to say to my students, go up to one of these rallies, read the placards, then put the messages to content analysis, and let's see what we get. And we get zilch each and every time. So what's the problem? I don't know what the problem is. I can easily say it's a metaphysical problem. Mm -hmm. I can easily say that, and I, that's the nearest that I can come to it at this point. It's a way of receiving the world that we are taught, not taught, forced to accommodate ourselves to. We must receive the world in a certain way. And if that's a definition of metaphysics, then the problem is metaphysical, and everything else flows from that.
I think this is what it's about. Do you have some sense of where the origin of the problem is? I, I put the origins back a couple of millions of years. I believe that we are a domesticated species. The other domesticates that we have around us are, were made that way by genetic manipulation. We contrived in that way to make them just like us. Uh, we evolved this way. We're domesticated by, let's call it ideology. I think that ideology is our domesticator, and it's con it composed mostly of technology. How to do it governs all of our lives, all of our thinking. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, abstract uh, logic. There are rules of logic. There are how to do it, of how to do the most abstract problems. I think that we are the we are the domesticated critters of how to do it or technology. And I believe we got that way very very long ago. Is this because we're slow and hairless <coughs> and clawless? And well, our dependence on tools and weapons, of course, was the very first thing, and onward and upward. And of course, the the, the way the brain evolved itself is uh, with the with the emphasis on first of all vision and secondly abstraction is that we became more and more and more the creatures of abstracting how to do things and we became less and less attuned to the natural world and that does not mean that we don't have it in us still because I believe that we do because we are not genetically manipulated into being domesticated beings it's the way of life into which we've drifted and it is as though ideologies and belief systems were prosthetic devices that take the place of natural behavioral modes that we see in every other species uh, in the world. And we've isolated ourselves in that way, I do believe, uh, and felt ourselves quite comfortable with the support of crutch, this prosthesis, which in, in simple terms is ideology. And ideology governs everything that we do, everything. Livingston's idea that belief systems are substitutes for natural forms of behavior has made him wary of the quest for what is sometimes called an environmental ethic, a quest that's been going on at least since Leopold issued his famous call for a land ethic. For Livingston, ethics are part of what he calls the prosthetic paradigm, the technological and ideological crutch which blocks participation in nature. Extending ethical rights to nature, which has no need of them, would only extend our control. It would not help us to relearn participation. I can't think in environmental terms. I don't know what it means, and I'm not trying to uh, stick handle around it. I no longer know what environmental means. If you say interspecies, then I will understand a little bit better what we mean. I don't think, I think I would like to do away with the notion of ethic and behave as our genetic material would have us behave. I know that I can with other beings who are, don't happen to be human, and I know that they do with me. And I don't think it's necessary to have a, um, let's say, a rigidified formula or a code or a Ten Commandments about how to behave because how to behave is in there. It's in my bone marrow. I know it. We did evolve as social beings with a very complex social order, as did many, many, many other species. Uh, I think there's something in our numbers that forced us to adopt an artificial way of dealing with social organization when we got past a certain point of density and when, when our technology became so powerful. Can you tell me what you mean by saying you know how to behave with other animals? 
my tendency with other animals is to listen, and uh, I sometimes feel that I know that there's communication that I share, certainly with my dogs, absolutely with them, but uh, with other w wild animals also. I, th I think that they can read you very quickly. <laughs> I think they can, animals can read you awfully quickly, whether you're uh, tuned into them, as it were, or whether you're uh, not, not aware of them, or whether you have some aggressive intentions toward them. I believe all that, certainly. What would be an example from your experience? Well, where I live, we have uh, animals that come and show no fear at all, either of the dogs or of us. I mean, and nobody has done anything overt to cause that to happen. It's simply that everybody knows everybody else, I think. I believe that there's, uh, there are social orders across species, for certain. I believe in interspecies social relationships and interspecies communication and so forth. I know this, I think, from just seeing the way animals behave without articulating what they're about to do next. Our school system, our, all of our ideologies, whether they're theological or what, are concentrated so much on the infantile individual self that I think therein lies a great deal of our problem. I believe there is a group self. Certainly there is in, in, the, uh, in the type of social structure out of which we, we evolved. I'm sure that is so. I think there is even a community self, a cross-species self. I think a community is aware of itself. And the participants therein are aware of themselves as the community just as you are aware of yourself as your child. There's no difficulty with that. I have no difficulty with my dogs, because they're large ruffians, as big as I am, and it's easier that way. But certainly my wife is me, and certainly the, the animals outside beyond my dogs are me also. I have no difficulty with that at all. This is what enables natural communities, I mean multi-species communities, to function, is the fact that they have a shared awareness of themselves as community which we have not lost, yeah. because it lives in us. But we have deliberately shelved it and filed it away in the interest of the human enterprise, of the consumption of what we call resources and what I call nature. There are many examples of what Livingston calls interspecies social orders. One which he has cited in his writing comes from Barry Lopez's book of Wolves and Men. Lopez argues that the natural act of predation involves something he calls the conversation of death. The prey, in effect, offers itself, and a mutual decision as to whether the predator will attack seems to take place. As if, Livingston says, there were some ancient interspecies pact arrived at over thousands of years of joint evolution. But there are other, less lethal examples as well. We were under a coral reef one time, and I noticed that we, we noticed that, my wife and I, we noticed that there was a cleaning station going on, you know, a uh, car wash. Large fishes line up, and they literally line up one to tail to nose, and they go through a little place where there are very many small fishes, big as my finger, and these are usually the young of uh, larger species, but they come and pick all the parasites off. They pick off all everything that's on the sides of that fish, fish moves on, the next one moves into place, and they clean him up, and so we just lined up, and there were the little things biting away at us and getting, well, I don't know that I have any parasites, but they were picking at our skin anyway as we went through, and then we moved on, and a big grouper or parrotfish come in behind you and sit there. Really? Yeah, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. 
And your sense is that you're simply ex- accepted there as another species. Well, sure, I'm there. I'm part of it. Why, you know, there's no self-other. I don't believe in self-other. I think that self-other is as much of a problem as any other kind of dualism or dichotomizing. I think it invites the same kind of dichotomy that infests uh, our particular Western culture. Other is eliminated at a community consciousness level. Self is community. There's no more other. The community is me and you, and you are me. I think other is a very big problem, although many people try to make it work for us and feel it is a positive thing. I, I do not. I do not like it. It's dichotomizing. I don't think that the cardinal chasing other cardinals other. They're just playing. I think that other is a, a terrible stumbling block to participating consciousness. It must be removed or one isn't there. And I doubt very much that the lion sees other. You watch a lion come and hit down a big wildebeest or something, a terrific crash, a bang, and you say, my Lord, if there ever was a, you know, a vicious self-other situation, it's that. But it's the same thing as an Oriole neatly, sharply picking up a caterpillar, you know. There's no difference. And I think he is what he eats. I think he gears down into a into a simplified self-other configuration for the few seconds it takes to catch the wildebeest or the caterpillar, then gears back up again to a, uh, a more mature, more developed uh, level of self. I think this is what it is. There's intentionality, but only for seconds. I think the predator has to assume that mode, gear down into low, low, low self-other. I see self-other as very low. And do his act, catch his rabbit, whatever he's doing, and then gear back up again to the groove self and trot off home with supper. I do think this is what happens. You can see a change in the animal's demeanor. And so play would be in the higher Oh, yes. Mode. Play, is, you know, play would be in a much higher mode. And I think all, practically all territorial chasing that's written up in the book says competition and aggression is play. Well, can we talk for a minute about the changes in, in, um, in scientific perspective that underlie your view? Uh, as to know, what nature is? I know very few in biology. Biology is still an economistic body of theory, as is uh, evolutionary biology, ecology, both. I see no changes there at all. I mean, territoriality is still sacred. Competition is still sacred. There's no question about that. The only people that are beginning to break this down a little bit, and I'm not totally up to date, I insist, are some of the primatologists, mostly women. And if you look at the work of Lindry Fedigan, if you look at the work of Donna Haraway, if you look at the work of Shirley Strum, and others and others and others, they're getting an altogether different look at the thing. And the old patriarchal, male-dominated science of primatology is never going to be the same again. It is quite wonderful. You're seeing words like reciprocity. You're seeing words like mutualism. You're seeing all sorts of things, and dominance is shrinking and shrinking into the background. It's just a wonderful thing to see. But I'm only seeing it in primatology. I am. It's all I know about. So ecology, biology, and <coughs> mainstream ethology, you think, are still based on these old models of hierarchy, dominance, competition? Absolutely, they are. Which, in your view, are drawn from <coughs> human society and applied. Well, it's Adam Smith. It's the invisible hand in the, in the, in the marketplace of nature. It's exactly the invisible hand that is still uh, invoked in practically all respectable 
uh, ecology and ethology. But it ain't natural. I don't believe in domination as a as a natural phenomenon. It's a it's a uh, pathological situation when you see domination. John Livingston is confident that he knows what nature is not. He will offer certain confident statements about what nature is, that nature is whole, for example. But when it comes to trying to penetrate the metaphysical dome and prescribing for human society, he grows more tentative. It's hard enough, he says, even to understand what's wrong. I'm in the business of problem definition, and that's the business that I am in, period. Um, I'm not in the business of solution offering because I'm not confident that I have a sufficient grasp of the problem. It sounds like a cop-out, I know. But in the, the currency of the technocratic society is solutions. And everybody has got a hard briefcase stuffed with solutions to throw at problems. And if the problem doesn't fit the preferred solution, they will trickily redefine the problem to fit the preferred technocratic solution. This is what the world conservation strategy is about. It's what the Brundtland, our common future, is about. They never tell us what sustainable development is, by the way, besides an oxymoron. They don't tell us, ever, what it is. So the currency is solutions. The language is solution-oriented. Nobody, it seems to me, is after problem definition. I think it was Ivan Illich who did say that I'm in the business of problem definition. And once we get the problem straight, it will take cadres of people to work out the solutions. And this is the way I feel that I've always felt uh, as a teacher. Well, I can certainly understand that you, you're a step ahead if you're not trying to solve the wrong problem. But I, I do think that what you're... I mean, we all have to live day to day and make decisions, and it seems to me, for example, just an immediate reaction, that out of what you're saying, one could easily draw uh, a priority uh, for children, let's say. Oh, absolutely. Uh, now, that has many social implications. Right? I anticipate if, if it is true, and I believe it to be true, that children need the bonding or imprinting experience on non-human beings at a pre-adolescent time, I agree with this entirely, then the implications of that in our school system are cataclysmic. And the implications of that in all of our other received institutions and patterns of belief are cataclysmic. The enormity of the adjustment that has to be made, if we even agree with that. Because, see, urban kids are not just undernourished in the sense of not having enough access to the heterogeneity of nature, because heterogeneity is the magic word. Not only undernourished and not having that access, they are absolutely malnourished through cultural conditioning. And malnourishment is a hell of a lot worse than undernourishment. And so we are domesticating our little ones in the school system and in the home system and everything else to be good, willing servants under the metaphysical dome and never giving them the opportunity to experience the multi-species heterogeneity that their being longs for. And we must provide this. Why is heterogeneity the magic word? Because no critter of any kind can fully individuate and mature 
in the context of, in a monospecific context. It just cannot. It just cannot. It must explore and experience. And my magic word at the moment is experiential nutrition. I believe that our children are undernourished and malnourished experientially because they do not, nobody lets them eat the worm. The worm is dirty. It's a clothes dirty out in the conservation area. We get them in preschool computers, and the computers don't dirty their clothes or muddy their fingers. And so we get them domesticated at an even earlier age than we used to. This is appalling. So what domesticates is, is the whole range of technique. The, the essence of the domestic, television domesticates. Yeah, the, the essence of domestication is dependence. And the human being is, that, that's the essence of it. So the human being is a domesticated being by being utterly and totally dependent on storable, retrievable, transmissible technique in a human-oriented context. And without heterogeneity, without the experience of how other animals live, how other animals feel, how other animals communicate, real problem. You've got a really a person of arrested development, as Paul Shepard says in Nature and Madness, and a society of arrested development. Now, if we could just arrest uh, urban industrial development, we'd be all right. Given these explorations of the last yeah. 10 years or 15 years, how do you see environmental movements today and the discussions that go on within environmental movements? I'm sympathetic, I suppose, to all aspects of the so-called environmental movement, but I, environmentalism, I don't identify myself as an environmentalist. I will not. I'm a naturalist. Okay. And since... Since 99.9% .9 of environmentalism is dedicated to the human interest, I simply can't buy it. I can only buy that part of the environmental movement that is working in the trenches of problem definition. And that part, of course, I'm very much interested in. I'm a little worried that there are so few naturalists involved. Practically all of my colleagues in environmental philosophy, or whatever you want to call yeah. it, are not naturalists. There are two or three of us, and that's all. I, I worry about it becoming a um, very abstract, very abstruse uh, philosophic enterprise that has less and less to do with the living, breathing, uh, bleeding world. Could you tell me what you're seeing that creates this alarm? Yeah, I think when, when it's all done in the abstract, it's not much, it's, it's no better than any other uh, classical uh, intellectual enterprise. And it's got to involve a sense, an identity, uh, an identity with the heterogeneity that is the living world. And if it simply becomes an argument amongst the professional philosophers, well then, I turn the page and go on to something else. As far as the environmental movement goes itself, most of that is how to conduct business as usual and get away with it. Resource conservation has always been prudential. It was always, if you can't be good, be careful. Always resource conservation was that. And that's what sustainable development turns out to be again. It's just a rerun with new, new slogans of the same old advancement of the human interest and getting away with it. I think it's probably fruitless to try and pigeonhole you in any way. I think you shouldn't. But do you have a sense of, of where you fit in the current discussions? I'm not even sure I do. Uh, I'm not even sure I do fit into the, except that I'm satisfying myself by asking the questions that I enjoy asking, and I try to ask them through beings who are not human beings. But I am, 
I'm committed to understanding what it is that causes the belief structure to be so so immobile and so resistant to penetration. I do not understand that because we're reasonable people all and we have nice conversations and we have very, very profound conversations often, but nothing happens. And I think that nothing happens because the overwhelming majority of us did not enjoy that pre-adolescent identification with nature, and if you didn't, it's simply academic talk. On Ideas Tonight, The Age of Ecology, Part 2. Heard on tonight's program were John Livingston of York University and David Ehrenfeldt of Rutgers University. The program was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Production assistants, Faye McPherson and Gail Brownell. Technical operations, Lon Tulk. Producer, Jill Eisen. Transcripts of this eight-part series are available for $20. Send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. And please be prepared to wait eight weeks for delivery. We've also prepared a free reading list to supplement this series, and you can get that by writing to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Monday evening on Ideas, Family Stories. I hope you'll join me. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>